The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Dov, and welcome, everybody, to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and stocks are searching for direction right now, struggling to make a fifth uh, straight day of gains. The Dow is up 380 at the highs, but we're up 70 points right now. The S&P up one point, and the Nasdaq has already turned negative by 61. Uh, energy is weighing on sentiment again with another wild ride for oil. At one point today, we fell more than 20% again to touch a low of 10 bucks a barrel. Right now, we're trading just under 13 for a half a percent gain. The economic data, not helping sentiment. Richmond Fed survey sinking in April to minus 53. All three components falling. Consumer confidence, the biggest monthly drop since 1973. And by the way, losing all the confidence built up during this administration. Let's get to all of it with Bob Bassani, especially with the Nasdaq lagging and those big tech earnings on tap. Robert? Yeah, Fang is not helping us at all today. Uh, I just want to point out the S&P 500. We were about to break out early this morning. 29.20, we were up there. That's the highest level since March 6th, believe it or not. And it all kind of drifted a little bit lower. We had uh, some comments from Dr. Fauci that we could be in for a bad fall around 10.45 or so. That kind of took a lot of the steam out of things. Uh, So you can see we're sitting essentially just off of the lows for the day here. Just want to point out the mega caps for the second day in a row, not helping at all. All the five biggest stocks in the S&P 500, every single one of them were down. That happened yesterday as well. Haven't seen that in a long time. What's keeping the S&P up is bank stocks that are, again, outperforming today, including some of the regionals, as well as some of the industrial names that are generally on the upside. Finally, want to point out many companies suspending their guidance, Pepsi, 3M, Xerox, and TripAdvisor, not only suspending, but laying off one quarter of its workforce. We've heard a lot about furloughs in the last couple of weeks. Guys, back to you. Bob, real quickly, we're showing TripAdvisor shares, which are up 2%. What does this tell us about what the market has priced in in terms of layoffs and more of these kinds of announcements that we're likely to hear? Well, it's certainly a good sign. Look, for for the last two to three weeks, I put up every morning at 940 a list of companies that are furloughing and withdrawing guidance. And the list has gotten bigger and bigger each each day as we got into earnings season. So obviously there's a lot of bad news priced in. But I don't think we should let the fact that it's up 2 percent. detract us from the grimness of the news that's going on. These are real people that are losing their jobs. These are real companies that are cutting guidance, making it very difficult for people to figure out what exactly these companies are worth right now. Yeah, no, it's scary. Uh, That's for sure. Bob, thanks so much. Bob Bassani with the latest there. Well, one of my next guests says he's not sure if this April rally represents a light at the end of the tunnel or an oncoming train headed for the market. For more, let me bring in Chris Zaccarelli. He's chief investment officer at the Independent Advisor Alliance. And Daryl Kronk is chief investment officer for Wells Fargo Wealth and Investment Management. All right, uh, Chris, I think it's you uh, that's worried about if this is an oncoming train. Well, our point was just we really don't know what's going to happen. A lot of the optimism that we've seen so far could be warranted based on all the stimulus we got from the Federal Reserve as well as from the federal government. 
However, we don't know if there's another shoe to drop later this year if, if the virus does have a resurgence. So we're just cautious, making sure that we're playing it both ways. You want to be uh, taking risk and being optimistic about what may happen in the future in terms of the recovery. However, you've got to be careful that this could be a prolonged recession because we may get a resurgence later on this year and we have to prepare for both cases. Daryl, it's interesting to look at the CNBC Fed survey where you know people expect another $3 trillion coming from the Fed and $2 trillion coming from Congress. And even so, the economy not back to what it was until mid-2022. Um, does that mean that people are too pessimistic or that the stock market is too optimistic? Um, I think probably the latter right now, uh, Kelly. Um, we sent, tend to think, uh, along with Chris, that uh, equities look a little bit overextended here. Um, we're watching very closely. I mean, if, if you use earnings numbers and look through even 2020, the 2021 consensus right now are for $169 on S&P earnings, which is certainly above the 164 prior peak in 2019. On average, it takes uh, markets usually about three to four years to recoup those high earnings watermarks. Um, and I think there's a lot of anticipation uh, and positive news about the reopening of the economy right now. One of the things that's been talked about quite a bit, and I think is material here as well, is a big piece of this retracement rally has come through a very narrow breadth. We talk about the top three, the top five, the mm -hmm. top nine driving this. If you look at the bottom 250 to 300 names in the S&P 500, a lot of them have not participated well in this retracement rally. So we'd like to see equities calm down here a little bit. If you look at what the bond market's telling you, um, what the commodity markets are telling you, and what the FX markets are telling you, none of them are particularly flashing great signals and signs right now. Right, although, Chris, as I heard I think Kyle Bass say this morning, you know, you have the Federal Reserve in there to support every aspect of the economy except buying stocks outright. And, and so obviously the market is rallying because they're supporting risk assets of all kinds, even if they don't extend those purchases to equities yet, right? That's true. You're back to the Tina trade. There is no alternative. And I think part of what the Fed is doing by easing financial conditions is providing a scenario where it's very hard to stay in cash. Uh, you still probably want to have bonds as part of your portfolio. But ultimately, risk assets are the place to be. And when the Fed floods the market with liquidity, you get the kind of rallies that we've gotten so far. Now, ultimately, liquidity can only take you so far if the if the fundamentals don't keep pace with what the markets are expecting. That's where you can have some trouble. And I think that's where where we agree with with, with what's been said so far, which is that you have to be cautious. It's not a time to take drastic action, but trading up in quality, looking for better uh, companies with better balance sheets, having the wherewithal to make it through a recession that could be potentially protracted, even if this right. is shorter, like we all hope. No, you're not one of the kinds who's buying uh, energy, I see, you know, or materials or industrials, or at least the, the kind of heavily leveraged uh, plays there. Daryl, would you uh, be looking in some of those uh, aspects? Like, you know, the traditional investing wisdom goes, you, you kind of want to buy what everybody's hating, typically, right? That's true, Kelly, and perhaps over the long term. But right now, while we're in the midst of a recession, we would still be underweight industrials, energy materials. We would actually be overweight technology, consumer discretionary, um, he uh, health care, and some financials as well. We think those are your better up-quality fortress balance sheets that when the economy turns back on can give you some defensive names. Maybe the exception there is financials, which have really – um, taking it pretty hard. Yeah. The reality is, though, uh, when they're trading at you know half of tangible books, uh, when you're getting the dividend yield, 
Um, we still think that's a, a nice value play here one, at today's levels. Daryl, one final quick question. You mentioned that you're overweight technology because of the Fortress balance sheets. Would anything in earnings this week change your mind? No, I don't think so. Because, again, uh, I think you'll probably see decent earnings numbers. That's been the theme so far uh, over the last day or two. But if you look at the broad season, uh, Kelly, you know, we came in right now we're down about 24% year over year on uh, Q1 earnings. That's 9% below consensus heading into the season. Hmm. Um, find, uh, the, the tech companies will continue to lead. They, they have the best demand and sales growth or revenue growth on the top side. We expect that trend to continue. Okay. So I think you've got to stay long technology here. Yeah, I'm just curious because, you know, again, with the ad declines, we're going to talk about that a little bit later on for Facebook and Google. They're certainly not immune, but as you're saying, there's other reasons right. to like them. Thank you both, Daryl Cronk, Chris Zaccarelli. Appreciate it. And we mentioned consumer confidence plunging today uh, as millions of Americans are now without jobs. Here's what happened. The index just posted its biggest one-month decline since 1973 and its second biggest drop ever. That said, future expectations perked up a bit. Joining me now is Steve Odland. He is the CEO of the conference board. Steve, let me just start with the, the sort of slightly positive news in here, the future expectations thing, which, which did pick up a bit. What does that tell you about as bad as the damage to consumer confidence and psyche is that people maybe see, you know, the reopening chatter and think, okay, it's not going to be this bad forever. Well, the conference board's consumer confidence index is made up of the present situation analysis and then what consumers are thinking about the next six months. And what we've seen is a huge, stunning drop in the present situation. We're in a bad period. We know that. But you're right. The, uh, the, the consumer expectations for the next six months is actually positive. It's gone up since last month. And that means that the consumers think that this is going to be a short-term read-in, you know, the next few months crisis and that we're going to lead our way out of it. The conference board expects GDP to decline in the first quarter by about 5.8%. But in the second quarter, the conference board's projection is a minus 40% on an annualized basis. So this, these are really stunning numbers. But the consumers think, hey, we're going to get out of this. You know, so the key to all of this is safely reopening the economy. It's interesting that you, that you highlight that. I mean, it almost makes me wonder, you know, do, you, do I want to bet against the consumer? In other words, are the consumers going to be right that this, as, as bad as that minus 40 is, we are going to have a V-shaped rebound? The stock market's kind of telling you that right now. It's not going to be back to 100 percent, but we could be back to 80 percent by the end of the year. Or do you think that's mistaken, that none of us yet realize how bad this is, that it's going to go on for months and quarters and years longer, and it's just going to take a while for that reality to set in? Well, remember, consumers uh, depend heavily on, in, in this index on what their current situation is and whether they've lost their job and what their wages are. And so this means that consumers expect to go back to work based on what's going on. But, you know, there are multiple scenarios out there, including this long U-shaped scenario or even a W-shaped scenario if there comes to be another uh, outbreak in the fall. And that's the one that I'm most worried about. But we've got to get this thing going. You, you're not, you're not going to see a V-shaped recovery unless we safely open the economy. You could do every virtual business now. You can do a lot of geography, mm -hmm. except for the hot spots. You could go click and pick for every retail and restaurant, uh, social distancing guidelines. The key to this is going to be some sort of safe harbor explanation or coverage for businesses that do open so that they don't have massive lawsuits in this thing. Yes. And then finally, we need liquidity. Uh, we've gotten some good liquidity going here, but I think it's going to need to be extended longer, at least through the end of the year here, to make sure that uh, we get this thing going. If sure. that all happens, I think consumer confidence and consumer spending 
will rebound by the holidays. Well, you know, we talk a lot about the liquidity on the show, whether it's coming from the Fed or Congress. But you mentioned the legality, Stephen. I think this is getting super interesting because this is going to come down in many ways to a big legal fight. You know, the journal today was highlighting that a lot of states are trying to push more of the coverage onto insurance companies to handle workers' comp claims, even if you can't necessarily prove you got coronavirus. But if you're a frontline worker, they want you to stay on the job, obviously. They want to make sure that companies stay open. It sounds like the president might be mulling something like this in terms of uh, food makers to make sure that they can keep going without having, you know, without facing a big legal threat. What more do you think should be done here? Well, Kelly, this is a big risk because how does any employer say it's okay to come back to work here? And then if the trial attorneys are out there waiting for one person to get sick and then say that the company's liable for that, there has to be some sort of federally led safe harbor set of guidelines that everybody follows. Do they, do they need masks? Do they make it voluntary? You know, whatever it is that says if you follow these guidelines, you cannot be uh, liable for this. Otherwise, how, how does the CEO ever say it's okay to come back in the water here? I don't think that's possible. So this, this safe harbor thing is really, really important. But the extension of these loans are really important, too. Remember, they've issued this for an eight-week period, mm -hmm. but this is going to extend beyond eight weeks. They should extend that eight-week period through the rest of the year. They should extend the forgivability period because you don't want to create a W where the eight weeks start to come back and then people lay off again because the eight weeks are up. So no, these are the kinds of things that need to be tweaked. It's, it's absolutely true. But, but before you go, I mean, I just wonder about the political will. Even getting this thing passed in the first place, that was always going to be the easiest time. Refilling it became a little bit of a political fight. Going back and refilling it, I, I just don't know if there's going to be the will the way that people have criticized the recipients of the PPP program. We're really going to go back and say, yeah, sure, have it for 16 weeks and here, take more money. I just don't see it. Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's an issue, Kelly, because you remember also overlay that, that we're in an election year and you've got both sides juxtap you know, fighting here to try to use this slyly. You know, they don't want right. to be overt about it, but there are, there are political overtones to this thing. And, you know, you've got one side not wanting to, uh, to reward big business here and want, you know, calling it bailouts. We've got to be careful here. These are employers, right? Mm -hmm. Big business, small business. And we've got to take care of them. We've got to avoid the bankruptcies that will happen unless this liquidity is extended. Well, well said. Uh, Steve, thanks for joining me. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Steve Odland as the CEO and president of the conference board. Coming up, a rare find on Wall Street is a sell rating on Amazon. And the analyst behind that bold call joins us next to explain why. Plus, could this be the first big advertising recession for Facebook and Google? We'll look at who's the most exposed as the tech giants get set to report earnings. Stay with us. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Some breaking headlines out of Washington involving the meat producers. Kayla Tausche here with the details. Kayla. Kelly, earlier today, President Trump said that he was planning an executive order to maintain the U.S. food supply chain. And now Reuters and Bloomberg are reporting that the executive order could come as soon as today. And in that, the president will mandate that meat processing facilities 
remain open. The executive order will use the Defense Production Act to make sure that they do so and will also outline some guidelines for how some of these plants can continue their operations safely. This comes, of course, Kelly, after multiple outbreaks at facilities owned by Tyson Foods and Smithfield Foods and an executive at Tyson warning that the food supply chain could be broken because of hundreds of employees uh, being sick and plants forced to shutter. But the White House is going to take matters into its own hands and invoke the Defense Production Act to make sure that that supply chain goes unbroken. Yeah, Kelly? Kayla, this is scary stuff. I mean, you have an official telling Reuters that without the order, the majority of processing plants, meat processing plants, could have closed for a period of time, reducing capacity by as much as 80 percent. I mean, that is terrifying stuff. It is terrifying, especially with restaurants closed as well, with so many Americans who previously would have had multiple options to put food on the table, now relying on that supply chain and relying more than ever on what is available at grocery stores. And clearly the White House wants to make sure that that is uninterrupted. Yeah, and like we were just discussing with uh, Steve Odlin of the conference board, the executive order, they say will, uh, and as you mentioned, provide liability protections for meat processing companies. That's probably the most important aspect of this, enforcing them to stay open. Kayla, thanks. Kayla Tausche with those headlines from Washington. Well, the coronavirus has, meanwhile, been a bull market for Amazon. That stock is up 24% since Americans started sheltering in place. My next guest, though, just downgraded shares of Amazon to the only sell rating on the street. In fact, he says, if anything, his outlook is still overly optimistic. With me now is Scott Mushkin, the CEO and founder of R5 Capital. Scott, welcome, and why the downgrade? Hi, Kelly. So I think the, the downgrade is just uh, kind of, as, 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 you, as you said, I mean, we see growth at Amazon this year, but just a lot slower now uh, that we've had COVID and, and the economic uh, kind of uh, unwind that we're seeing. So, I mean, you look across their businesses, um, especially their profit-making businesses like third-party seller services, uh, subscription services, which is really the prime membership, AWS and advertising. Uh, we think all those slow down this year and uh, profits slow down. So... The interesting thing about Amazon, like we've said, is that it's bucked the trend. You know, a lot of companies, oh, they say, okay, profits are down. The stock is pricing that in. With Amazon, it's a little bit different story. Um, is there a disconnect between what is priced in the stock uh, today in terms of profitability and what you think is actually possible? And are we going to, do you think the earnings this week could be a wake-up moment in that sense? I mean, I think earnings are going to be pretty good. I think the question is, what will the outlook look like? Uh, what, what will the company say? I mean, expenses are going through the roof. They've added a lot of employees. Um, but I think it gets back to your actually prior interview and what, you know, what does the consumer economy look like uh, as we get into the fall? And I guess our view is is that it's you know, the, the sailing ahead could be pretty rough. I mean, we got a presidential election. We could have COVID reemerging. Uh, the Fed has done unprecedented things, and so is fiscal, fiscal stimulus. So we think the, the outlook into the back half of the year uh, is likely to be challenging. We're talking about unemployment rate over 20 percent, uh, economic contraction, and in, in maybe in the second quarter as much as, you know, annually at a 40 percent rate. So I guess we're just in the minds, and, you know, R5 does both research, but also do a lot of consulting. Um, and we're talking to our consulting uh, companies, and they're all really worried. Um, so I think our outlook is probably less bullish than a lot of people out there. And Amazon it's a big company. It's got tentacles in everything. Right. Um, and so our thought process, I mean, something that people probably don't know, but Amazon actually has a growing food service business. And, of course, all the restaurants are closed. Um, Amazon Business Prime is a big part of their business um, for, for their one piece. So, you know, this company is likely to slow. We don't think the, you know, the stock was up about 30 percent when we, when we downgraded it. Uh, 
it was one of our top picks. Mm -hmm. We just don't think it can avoid what's going on in the broader macro. Sure, and it's interesting because I actually was going to ask you if reopening would be more of a headwind uh, for Amazon. You know, once people leave their houses again, they obviously don't get that uh, benefit as much. Now they've hired everybody. They're left with lower demand. Maybe they're in a pinch there. But you're kind of saying, I, I wonder if what you're saying is they're in a, in a pinch either way. So if the economy turns lower, they suffer. And if the economy is stronger because of reopening, could they also suffer? Yeah, I mean, that's such a perceptive question because in some ways, yes, that's kind of what we're saying is that, if, you know, they're part of the broader economy, you know, they'll suffer. But if we do reopen much faster than we think, it's not that Amazon won't do well, it will, but from an equity perspective, there's certainly other companies that will likely see a sharper rebound. And even though the stock would probably go up with the broader market, it would probably go up a lot less um, as people rotate into names that will benefit more, some of the restaurants, some of the other discretionary right. retailers. One final question while we have you here that kind of relates to all of this, but I guess if Amazon's not going to work as a great trade for the rest of the year, I wonder about all of Fang, and obviously we're going to hear from uh, Facebook and Alphabet this week, but they have certainly seen advertising declines. Is it possible that this is the end of an era for Fang in general? I mean, there, there are people out there who say, look, these are the only companies that can win in this kind of economy, and I wonder if you would see it as maybe the opposite. Yeah, I mean, you know, Again, all those companies, I'm not going to try to call the end of FANG. I'm not sure. I, that's maybe above my pay grade. But, you know, what I'd say is, generally speaking, as we look at the unprecedented environment that we're in, uh, it's like nothing we've ever seen. Um, and the potential outcomes are, are, are very wide. All these companies participate in the broader U.S. economy in a major way. Um, and so it, it's hard to imagine that you're going to have 20% unemployment yet everything's going to be okay at some of these mega, mega tech companies. Advertising is a perfect example. And one of the things we looked at with Amazon, advertising is slowing down. Hmm. Um, and, you know, Facebook had some comments on that. Advertising is one of the first things these companies have cut. CapEx is getting cut all over the place. That goes to AWS. That certainly would hurt, you know, go, go to Google, which is hmm. big in that area. So I would just say that, you know, these companies do participate in the broader U.S. economy, even though they may, may be relative outperformers, their businesses are likely to slow. No, it's a good, it's a good point. Um, Scott, thanks so much. Again, Scott Mushkin is the only, uh, only one on the street with a sell on Amazon right now. And thank you for explaining why and, and your views on the whole economy right now. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Oh, thanks for having me, Kelly. Appreciate and he's it. he's the CEO of R5 Capital. Coming up, states have already received money from the federal government for coronavirus expenses, but many say it's not enough, and New York is among them. What options do they have now, and what's at stake? We'll explore that. And with part of the economy beginning to reopen, how are restaurants preparing, and what do they anticipate demand will be? We'll ask the CEO of Waffle House, who's getting ready to open their doors. Reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in a couple minutes. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Let's get you the very latest in the coronavirus pandemic. Over to Sue Herrera for the headlines this hour. Sue? Thank you very much, Kelly, and good afternoon, everyone. Italy has confirmed more than 200,000 cases of the coronavirus, becoming the third country to do so. And the daily count of both new infections and deaths rose from the day before. And Italy started to ease virus restrictions just a few days ago. Protesters gathered on the steps of North Carolina's capital for the third week in a row today, opposing that state's extension of its stay-at-home order until May 8th. Schools are closed for the rest of the academic year. And here in our area, the U.S. Air Force's Thunderbirds and the Navy's Blue Angels are honoring health care workers and others on the front lines with flyovers today. The jets began in Newark, New Jersey, before heading to New York City, and they will continue on to Trenton and then end in Philadelphia this afternoon. As always, on, for more on the coronavirus coverage, head to CNBC.com. Kelly, I was out in front of the building. You see them? And I saw them go right down the Hudson. It was so awe-inspiring, and I know it was very much appreciated, as you could see, from the healthcare workers. I'm glad we got that video in, because every video I saw, the people tried to take of it, frankly, just doesn't really do it justice. <laughs> I know. We, we tried. We yeah. had NBC crews shoot that for us <laughs> in New York City, so we got lucky. Yes. Yes, we did. Uh, thank you for sharing it, Sue. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, Sue Herrera. The pandemic has taken quite a toll on state coffers. The administration is now drawing a line in the sand of what states can and cannot use this federal aid for when fighting coronavirus. Here's what Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin told CBC earlier today. There was a, a chunk of money. It's now all been sent out to the states and the cities to cover them for coronavirus expenses. And again, we've been clear that to the extent people had to use police to enforce uh, coronavirus issues, public safety, things like that, that they could allocate that money to the coronavirus issues, but that this was not about lost revenues. Lost revenue from the pandemic is going to hit one place particularly hard. That's where we just had the flyover. It's New York City, and that's where Contessa Brewer is, and she joins me live with the latest. Contessa? Yeah, Kelly, the financial outlook is very dim for the bright lights of this big city. There is a real cash crunch coming. Revenue shortfalls of nearly $10 billion over the next two years. It all comes at a time when a rising number of New Yorkers need help. The city's budget office predicts half a million lost jobs over the next year. So now, just today, the governor was talking about how the state reopens. He's talking about construction and manufacturing, not what he calls an attractive nuisance business. An attractive nuisance in this context, you open up a facility or an attraction that could bring people from outside the region to you. Uh, You have all this pent-up demand in the whole tri-state region. Make sure you don't open up something that's going to bring hundreds of people from the outside in. But come on, tourism is a major driver. Last year, 65 million visitors came here. Restaurants, museums, Broadway, Fifth Avenue shopping, it's all shut down. And the city-supported tourism viewer will furlough half its workers starting in May. There's a very dim future, financially speaking, for the city, unless there's a big turnaround or some aid, Kelly. Yeah, we've got uh, Nancy Pelosi saying she hopes to have 
a lot more funding uh, for the states, uh, for their budget needs in the next round of the relief bill. It's going to be a huge fight uh, for now Contesta Banks. Yeah. For us, it just means no Legoland uh, for my son this year. Coming up, Expedia's Barry Diller says they'll likely slash ad spending by 80%, and they're not alone in their big cutbacks. How much of an ad recession are we in for, and will the online tech giants be able to weather the storm? Plus, the future of education is up in the air as the shutdowns persist. The president of Northwestern University tells what learning could look like and the backlash some are getting as they take federal funds. That's still to come. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a check on these markets, which have lost their gains. Uh, the Nasdaq's now negative. Dom Chu is here with some of today's big movers. Dom? All right. So, Kelly, markets have been all over the board, positive and negative. The Dow, the S&P 500 and Nasdaq mixed right now, as you can see here. At the highs of the day, the Dow was up 378 points at the lows, down roughly 120. Now, the best performing sectors, you can see economically sensitive ones, energy, industrials, financials. On the laggard side of things, you've got technology, comm services, and then healthcare as well. Now, check out some stocks to watch today. They include this trio. Google parent company Alphabet, Ford Motor, and Starbucks. Beyond the headline profit and revenue numbers, traders will be listening for any commentary from Alphabet on trends in advertising spend. For Ford, they've already said the virus pandemic will hurt results substantially, but any updates on balance sheet strength could be at focus. And for Starbucks, any updates on what China operations look like as economic restrictions ease there and what the U.S. could look like for reopenings there as well. Kelly, back over to you. Yep, Dom, thank you. Dominic Chu. As the pandemic shutdown continues, more and more companies are suspending or canceling their dividends in an effort to preserve cash. Some 80-plus companies, including lately GM and Ford, have done so this year, making it the largest number and fastest pace in nearly two decades. On top of all that, an additional 135 companies have reduced their payouts to shareholders. And now that we're on pace for the worst year since 2009, all this according to S&P Global Market Intelligence. There are some standouts, though, that are committed to keeping their dividend. UPS today saying it'll maintain its dividend. IBM saying it'll increase its quarterly dividend. Uh, you can see the reaction in shares. UPS down 4.5% and IBM up about 1% on those announcements. Well, the coronavirus outbreak has created a crisis on America's college campuses at what is supposed to be one of the most exciting times of the year. Now it's becoming clear that some schools simply won't survive. Scott Cohn joins us live with the story. Scott? Hi, Kelly. We're at the University of California, Santa Cruz, home of the Banana Slugs. And yes, around this time of year, it would be packed with students and also anticipating students coming in in the fall. They still face a May 1st decision deadline uh, in California to get their deposits in. But of course, everything now is up in the air. They've been virtual here since the middle of March. UC System President Janet Napolitano saying that the costs just in March, unanticipated costs, more than half a billion dollars and the worst maybe yet to come. The American Council on Education now projects nationwide enrollment in the fall will be down uh, 15%, and that includes 25% decline in international students for a revenue loss, conservatively, of $23 billion. A number of institutions that were already um, not on the greatest financial health or foundation um, have to explore options that were never on the table before, which is mergers, acquisitions, spinning off certain programs, or in some institutions, unfortunately, you, you, you just cannot survive. At Beloit College, a small liberal arts school in Wisconsin, they're trying to be flexible with the idea of opening this fall, but being able to switch quickly between classroom learning and online learning. 
the world's upside down. There's no predictive model that allows us to understand what might happen in the fall. And in fact, that question asked two weeks ago would look very different than the response I give you right now. Three weeks from now, it may look very different again. Beloit has essentially been forced now to freeze its tuition. It's also pushed back its decision date, as have a number of schools, to June 1st. But that's even more uncertainty in a very uncertain year, to say the least. Kelly? Yeah. Uh, Scott, thanks. It's great reporting. Scott Cohn. For more on the immense challenges facing academia, I'm joined by Morton Shapiro. He is president of Northwestern University. Morton, welcome. And you have a lot of Northwestern grads around here. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Kelly. It's an honor to be here. You know, one of the main things I wonder about is the parents who I hear talking about whether they should really send their kid back to campus in the fall or maybe take a gap year. Um, What happens if people decide to do that writ large? I mean, that would be terrible for your finances, right? It it would. And we just heard from that excellent report about how uh, many colleges and universities, in fact, most of us are hemorrhaging revenues. uh, And if the students don't come back, in person in the fall, it's going to be much, much worse. And I hear from a lot of parents. We just uh, notified the students who got into Northwestern to start in the fall. And, um, the final deposits are due think, tomorrow. So a lot of people are thinking, should they gap if we're going to be online in the fall, as we are now, along with everyone else, maybe they should gap and then come back when they can get the full collegiate experience. Right. So Brown, uh, I believe, is trying to have students back on campus in the fall. Your Big Ten colleague, Purdue, uh, is trying as well. We spoke with Mitch Daniels about that yesterday. Um, Harvard says it's going to explore doing online classes in the fall. And maybe students won't defect because it's Harvard. But uh, I suspect a lot of students would skip if classes were online. Are you going to try to have uh, kids on campus in the fall? And, And what are the considerations in terms of safety for doing so? Yeah, well, Kelly, that's the million-dollar question right there. But first of all, I'm not so sure as many people are getting a gap because they might not have a lot of gap opportunities. So we always have, you know, small numbers of students who want to work in a medical clinic in Africa or something else and environmental work in the Amazon, et cetera. I don't know how many of those are going to be open. So if the gap experience is being home watching reruns of Friends, I'm not so sure their parents and uh, those kids are going to gain very much from that. Uh, what we're thinking about Northwestern is pretty much the same as everyone else. And while it's tempting to think, Kelly, about the revenue aspects, you know, they're really secondary. I mean, we're, you know, anybody, especially those schools who own their own hospitals, we don't, like many of our peer institutions, though, they're, they're just completely hemorrhaging without so-called elective surgeries. So there's so many budget problems out there. And if you don't have the students back in the fall and person, maybe that makes it worse. Right. But the real considerations, as you guess, are can you test them? Can you isolate them? Can you do quarantines? Can you spread them out? Um, and all that. And at Northwestern, we're just like Brown and just like Purdue. And I did watch that excellent interview you had with my colleague, Mitch Daniels from Purdue. Um, and, you know, we all want to open up, but we're only going to do it if it's safe. And it's not just safe, of course, for, as Chris Paxson President Brown said so beautifully in yesterday's New York Times op-ed. It's not just safe for the students, but it's safe for the safe for the faculty yeah, and staff. Absolutely, they're much older. Exactly. And what's going to happen exactly. to them? So yeah, we we have. You know, we just tell you the inside baseball here at Kelly. That you know, we have some we have some dorms that are not being used right now because we use them as swing space. You know, so if we're renovating a dorm, we open it up so we could figure we could put people in there and spread them out. 
getting rid of doubles and everybody is single. There are also a whole bunch of hotels in the city of Evanston that are basically shut down and we can rent. We're exploring renting a couple of floors in certain very close by hotels. And if we could do it safely, you want to do it. But I don't want it on my conscience if anybody gets sick or God forbid dies because I'm worried about my budget and bringing people back before it's safe. I'm simply not going to do it. No, and that's fascinating that you might look to hotels uh, nearby and maybe other colleges could do the same. Just before you go, I want to ask about the financial piece of this because it's come up a lot when uh, colleges like yours, you said you're hemorrhaging cash, I think got $8 million uh, that you could have uh, from the CARES Act. People say, look, you have an $11 billion endowment. How is it possible that you ever have a cash crunch? How would you explain to people why that endowment doesn't make more cash available for precisely crises like these? Well, it, it will. I mean, I would guess that the avail rate, the percentage of the market value of the endowment that you take to spend to support the current generation of students, faculty, and staff, which is supposed to be 5.0%. I think almost everyone's going to be six or seven for us. An extra percentage points, $100 million, you know, given the size of our budget, which is still the size of our endowment, which is still a little bit north, thank God of $10 billion. Uh, we're not going to accept the government money. A lot of our peers are not. Um, that's no criticism for those schools who do. Um, but, you know, a lot of the, the budget, a lot of the endowment is restricted. So the idea of somehow we could use that to cover declines in net tuition revenues or the room and board $25 million rebate we gave for the current spring quarter because we closed the dorms, that you could somehow increase the avail rate on restricted money. A lot of it's restricted for cancer research, it's for PhD students, it's for athletics. I know you were an athlete at, at WNL, it's such an important part <laughs> yeah, of people's community. Our girls' um, team, uh, lacrosse team, was nothing like yours, <laughs> which, uh, in well, case people yeah, aren't familiar. I, I was at Williams. So yeah, well, yeah. Also, so. NESCAC's a little different scale. Uh, but yeah, no. that's, that's really inside uh, baseball or inside <laughs> lacrosse. But you know, and, and one thing I'd say about your WNL, there are very few schools. Everybody's so worried about the trillion and a half dollars in student loan debt. There are only 19 schools left who don't package loans at all in financial aid. And and your WL is one of them, Washington, and so is Northwestern. So, I mean, my real worry is what are they going to do? Are they going to maintain their commitment to need-based financial aid? Because that's the last thing yeah. you change. Yeah. No. And that that goes right back to the heart of uh, who are the winners and losers from all of this. And, you know, students who need aid, obviously, is the last population you'd want to harm. Morton Shapiro, it's been fascinating. Really, thank you uh, for your time today. Thank you. And good luck. And keep us posted on your decisions. Uh, He's the president of Northwestern University. Still ahead as companies scale back on advertising budgets due to the ongoing economic uncertainty. The online ad giants won't be spared. What that means to the big tech companies that depend on those dollars is next. And later as Georgia becomes one of the first states to start allowing restaurants to reopen, we'll talk to the CEO of Waffle House about what that means for his business and what the future of dining looks like when the exchange comes right back. Welcome back. Google parent Alphabet is set to report earnings after the bell today, followed by Facebook tomorrow. Investors are going to be watching their ad revenue numbers to get a sense of the impact coronavirus is having on their business. For more on how hard these tech giants could be hit, I'm joined by Sarah Fisher, the media reporter at Axios, and our own Julia Borston. And Julia, I just want to start with you. You've got some great numbers in here. We mentioned Barry Diller earlier saying marketing spend by Expedia could drop 80 percent or more. And these companies aren't immune. 
Yes, absolutely. If you look at the travel sector and how it has been so decimated by coronavirus, really shut down, travel companies are among the biggest advertisers, particularly on places like Google and Facebook. Travel was one of the biggest sectors in terms of advertising on face on Google last year, responsible for um, $11 billion in total spending. And now search spending on Google is expected to be down by 50%, if not much more. We heard from Barry Diller that Expedia, which he's the executive chairman of, is going to be dramatically decreasing its spending you know, by billions of dollars, going from $5 billion down to $1 billion. And Google especially is really going to be feeling that. And we'll also see Facebook also Um, When it reports tomorrow, we'll see just how much it's exposed to that travel and then the retail sector as well. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting, Sarah, and, you know, we talk so much about the big tech companies and, uh, you know, the trillions and dollars of market cap. They get a lot of ad business from small businesses. So you look here at how the price of Facebook ads is declining. A lot of that, Sarah, is actually small and local business advertising, right? That's exactly right. And when you think about how they buy those ads, those are self-serve, meaning that they have no contracts with Google or Facebook. And so if they sense uncertainty, they're just going to stop spending. They're not obligated to maintain a contract like they would with something like television. The other thing to keep in mind is that in the beginning of this, when we're looking at Q1 earnings through March, small businesses weren't able to update their creative. They weren't able to forecast what products were coming down the pipeline. So there was no chance at marketing in March. Looking ahead, I wouldn't expect it to get so much better, but at least some of these small businesses, I'm thinking about some of direct-to-consumer upstarts like workout uh, companies that can work out from home. Hmm. At least these companies have chance now to transition some of their marketing for the second quarter. That's a great point. And Julie, I also wonder how much of this is priced in. And again, you know, if it matters, I mean, no one's questioning their dominance. No one's saying as a result of coronavirus, they're going to lose market share, right? So it's just more about you know, I guess, testing their resilience when ad revenue dries up somewhat. Absolutely. I mean, Kelly, together, Google and Facebook comprise about 60% of all digital ad dollars. And it is very possible that they will grow their market share through coronavirus because what they do is so measurable. But I think there are really two ways of thinking about this here. One is in terms of categories. There are certain categories where ad spending is really ground to a halt. Travel, of course, being foremost among them. Also restaurants not spending on advertising right now. And then the other category is just in terms of direct response versus brand advertising. Brand advertising has fallen off dramatically. Facebook, because it does have a certain amount of direct response advertising, a lot of those D2C brands click here, click through to buy this, to watch this video, to download that. Those direct response ads are going to do much better and be much more resilient um, than the brand advertising. And so we'll really see um, how this all shakes out. But it'll be really interesting to look at advertising sort of a proxy for the health of the consumer spending environment. Sarah, as we go, anything you'd want to direct people's attention to in these reports? Yeah, I'd say the to echo Julia's point, I mean, tech giants are definitely going to take on the brunt of these losses, but analysts expect them to come out stronger on the other end simply because their balance sheets were so healthy before this. It's some of the smaller upstarts that take on advertising. I think of companies like Twitter and Snapchat that I think are a little bit more exposed here just because their businesses aren't as big. It's a great point, especially like you said with the self-service portals. It reminds me of you know, how easy it is to, to churn off of streaming devices versus uh, traditionally cutting the cord. Sarah, thanks. Sarah Fisher from Axios. Julia, before you go, I just want to uh, draw everyone's attention to the movie theater stocks right now, uh, which appear to be moving higher. I mean, are we, are we seeing more reopening announcements? 
Well, yeah. So the movie theater chain uh, companies are soaring between yesterday and today. Major gains responding to the news that many states are preparing to reopen their economies. There won't be any major uh, movies released until mid-July, but we see AMC Entertainment up 14 percent today, up 25 percent over the past two days. Cinemark up 6 percent today, up about 15 percent for the weekend. IMAX up 10 percent today and also up about 15 percent just since Monday morning really in response to anticipation that people might be able to go back to theaters this summer. Yeah, but I expect they'll, they'll be a very different experience if they do. Uh, still, Julia, thanks for uh, drawing our attention to it, Julia Borston. Coming up, the Waffle House indicator. More than 2,000 locations in 25 states have got a really unique pulse of the consumer, and they're about to reopen, speaking of reopening, in several places. The CEO is on deck with us uh, with the preps and what dining will look like starting this weekend on the other side of this break. Welcome back. According to Georgia's reopening timeline, restaurants are now allowed to resume dine-in service in the state, and a number of other states are about to come online this weekend, too. So time to get ready for the coronavirus version of the Waffle House indicator. Joining me now is the CEO of Waffle House, Walt Amer. Walt, welcome. Thank you, Kelly. It's a pleasure to be with you today. I have enjoyed Waffle House uh, many, many times over the years. Uh, I think about high school prom night. Anyway, we won't go into it. Uh, but listen, so what's it going to look like at Waffle House in Georgia and other places where you can reopen? Yeah, happier times thinking of the prom nights for sure. Um, so we are we're really not reopening. What we're doing is we're taking the restaurants where we are open and we're adding some limited dining. Uh, and a lot, not a lot has changed for us because customers to this point over the last six weeks have been coming to our restaurants. They've been getting out of their cars. They've been walking into our restaurants, placing orders, waiting patiently for their food at a distance from one another uh, and a distance from us. And, uh, and then they get their food and then they leave. And the difference really for us now is, and we're, we're excited for this opportunity, is that we now can add the ability for them to just sit at a distance and eat as opposed to have a go eat in their laps in their car or on the tailgate of a truck. We've seen a lot of things, a lot sure. of picnics in our parking lots lately. So that's that's really what we're doing. It's just a very slow addition of some additional uh, capacity inside the restaurant. Yeah, and, and like I, like you said, it's a, a slow change, but I think it's still a significant one. You know, for people to sit in a restaurant, maybe even have table service as opposed to just taking the food with them, tell me about how that affects staffing. And it was interesting to hear you say that you're not opening any more locations. You're just adding that dining aspect uh, to the ones that are already open. Yeah, we're taking this very uh, carefully. We're following all the CDC guidelines. We're doing all the things you'd expect a restaurant to do. The, fortunately, restaurants have been uh, kind of raised to, um, to live to standards for safety for our customers. And so we've enhanced a lot of that. Uh, where we have closed restaurants, it's really because the economies in those particular markets really have not responded to with any kind of demand. And so we're looking at the restaurants we have open to help gauge when and where it would be appropriate to add more restaurants back online, if you will. And as you know, as you mentioned in the intro, we are uh, we're very much uh, driven by having our restaurants open and available for people 24 yeah. hours a day. We're just not there yet. Yeah, so that, that's what I was going to say. You know, your restaurants in many cases were famous for not having keys because they literally never close, even in natural disasters. So this is kind of a, a national, natural disaster, and it has affected your service hours. When do you expect to be back up at full service? 24-7, 365, you know, you can, you can have a dine-in experience. How many years off is that? 
But, you know, a lot depends on on what's happening. And, uh, you know, obviously, if there was a, a vaccine or some sort of cure for this virus, I think it could happen quick. But it, it doesn't seem to be heading in that direction. So I think the role we're trying to play right now is to help the country and help ourselves figure out how to deal with uh, the virus being with us for some time and how to get our businesses prepared to provide jobs and opportunities for our people. Uh, we've always been there, try to be there for the customers when they needed us most. And now we're trying to be there for when our employees need us the most. And I think it's gonna be some time. I think we'll gradually start welcoming uh, more and more customers back. Fortunately, the customers are really behaving. I've, I've spent most of my time in the last six weeks in the restaurants and everybody is really getting it and yeah. they're they're paying attention to the guidelines and they're doing what they should do well, and i know that's not 100 percent, but most people are oh, i want to sneak, just can you give me one word listen how what percentage of your restaurants have to be full to be profitable five second answer um half okay that's about what we've heard elsewhere i, yeah. I know that putting you on the spot like that is tough but you know it gives us a sense of when profits might be back and thank you for everything that you're doing Thank you very much. Walt Come Amer. meet with us again. Yeah, I know I will. Believe I got to get back down to Virginia. Uh, Walt <laughs> Amer is the CEO of Waffle House. And our breaking news coverage continues with Power Lunch after the break. Next hour, we'll go inside the largest U.S. mall operator and how they plan to start reopening nearly 50 of their sites starting this Friday. Simon Property shares are surging more than 10% on the news. Plus, the chairman and CEO of Merck, Ken Frazier, joins us for a CNBC exclusive. They've cut their 2020 forecast as a result of coronavirus. We'll talk about why, about their results, and the fight against COVID-19. Stay with us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.